Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament prophet Nahum. Jonah, Micah, Nahum is where it's located. We're going through the, the Bible, the, the books of the Bible, book by book, giving an overview of what the book teaches and how they hang together. And today we're in the prophet Nahum. Here's the key concept today. Allow God to destroy what is like Nineveh in you. Now, maybe you don't know exactly what I'm talking about yet. We're going to fill in those details. But allow God to destroy what is like Nineveh. We learn that from the prophet Nahum. A sequel is the continuation of a story. If you go to the movies, you're familiar with sequels. And you're familiar with the fact that the formula for a sequel is not about the quality of the movie. It is about the quantity of the money. So films that are fairly cheap to make and make a profit, they tend to get sequels. That is why horror movies have sequels. Evidently, fake blood and screaming teenagers are fairly cheap. And so there have been nine movies in the series The Nightmare on Elm Street. There have been ten movies in the series called Halloween. There have been twelve movies in the series of Friday the 13th. But can you guess which series of movies has had the most sequels? I'll give you a hint. It's not a horror film. Any guesses? James Bond. James Bond. They have made 23 James Bond movies over the years, starting in 1963 with the very first James Bond movies. Can you remember the, the, the title of that very first one? So you, you knew that way too fast. This is not information you have to carry around with you, right? That's, that's taking up space. You've got to get rid of that, make room for something else. But yes, Dr. No was the, was the first movie. This series has grossed $5,074,000,000. So with numbers like that, you can bet there's going to be another James Bond movie. Sequels. Well, Nahum is a sequel. And it's a sequel to the book of Jonah. 150 years before Nahum's time, Jonah went to Nineveh. And Jonah called for repentance. And he was shockingly successful. The entire city repented, and including the king, and the destruction that was on tap for them was turned away for a while. But now, in Nahum's time, they have become the epitome of bloodthirstiness and evil and violence. Nahum speaks against them. Nahum's name means consolation, but his word is anything but consolation for the Assyrians, whose capital was Nineveh. Nahum's book is an announcement. It's not an appeal. There is no request to turn to God. There's no urging for repentance. There's no pleading for change in Nahum. It is an announcement of doom. It is all condemnation. He says to Nineveh, basically, you will be destroyed. Let me tell you how. Let me tell you why. And let me tell you by whom. And the who is God. Nahum says, God is against you, Nineveh. Can you imagine hearing that? God is against you. In reality, it's likely that the Ninevites never even heard Nahum's words. Because though it's not consolation for Assyria, it is consolation for the, the people who heard it first. And that is the inhabitants of the southern kingdom of Judah. The message to the southern kingdom of Judah was, those people who came and carried off your cousins in the north and took them into captivity, God was watching that, and God is responding to that. 
Now, Nahum doesn't give us a date for his writing, but in chapter 3, verse 8, he refers to the fall of the Egyptian city of Thebes as a past tense event. So, that happened in 661 B.C., and we know that the fall of, uh, of Assyria that he predicts happened in 612 B.C., so somewhere in that about 50-year period between 661 and 612, Nahum was speaking these words. And this is what he says. Let's look at this uh, verse 7 of chapter 1 as we begin. He said, The Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. But with an overwhelming flood, He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue His foes into darkness. Now, Nineveh was located in what we now call Iraq. That's why I, I had you pray for that area of the world. In fact, it was very near the city of Mosul. I want to show you the map of Iraq. Mosul's in the news right now uh, as we're preparing, the forces uh, of, of the governments are preparing to get this area back from ISIS because that whole area Mo, where Mosul is, where Nineveh was, that whole area is controlled by ISIS today. Nineveh boasted two defensive walls. The inner wall was the larger of the two. It stood a hundred feet high and it was wide enough for three chariots to drive abreast around the walls. It had a moat, a water moat around it that was 150 feet wide and that moat connected to the Tigris River as it was on the banks of the Tigris River. All of this was thought to make Nineveh impregnable, that this was all for defensive purposes. But ironically, it will be that very situation and structure that will be its undoing, and Nahum tells us that. But we also see in Nahum that the, the religious revival that took place under Jonah was short-lived. It didn't last very long. The people got very scared at Jonah's preaching, and they turned to God, but sooner or later they got comfortable, and they returned back to their own ways. And we note that very similar pattern in human behavior, don't we? We hear about danger. We think about tragedy. We, we think maybe we're going to be in trouble. And we cry out to God, God, get me out of this. God, relent from this. God, do something different. I'll go to church. I'll tithe. I'll give up that habit that, you know, I know you don't like. We make all these promises. But then when comfort comes back and the emergency passes, we forget about those promises. That's true of the human heart. And here it's true of an entire civilization. They turn back to their own ways. And what their ways were was ways of aggression and evil and warfare. They are the most powerful nation at this period of history. But the judgment that Jonah announced, now we see in Nahum, was only temporarily delayed. As God says in chapter 2, verse 13, I am against you. Nineveh's doom is declared in, throughout chapter 1. And as we read in, in verse 14 of chapter 1, here's how he puts it. He says, The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Now, what's interesting is as, as Nahum was speaking these words, it was against all the evidence of his eyes. Because Nineveh was the power in place at that time. No one could imagine Nineveh falling or succumbing to pressure. But you see, God is the God who sees all time, all the time. He knows what the future will bring. And He's giving Nahum the insight that these people who seem so secure will fall. And it reminds us, if we are living out of the will of God, 
We dare not think that just because we're comfortable and seeming secure in our rebellion that we are safe. You don't know what tomorrow will, will bring. And God's wrath was building against Nineveh as he watched their events, their activities. It was like simmering up to the surface. I'm just listening to the music. <laughs> okay. You're struggling to get that thing turned off. Okay, here's a nice uh, reminder for us all to turn the phones off or put them on mute right now. Okay, so I heard once a, a lecture given on the book of Nahum, and uh, the lecturer likened God's wrath towards Nineveh as a boy of heating up milk on a stove. Now, today we'd probably use a microwave, but you remember the days you use a saucepan and you put the saucepan on, a little milk there, maybe before bed to get some warm milk, and you watch that milk. Now, you needed to watch it simmer so it doesn't boil over, but if you didn't pay attention to that, it would boil over, and once it got boiling, it was impossible to stop. And he said that's kind of like God's anger towards Ninevites here and in our lives as well. There's a simmering period. And in that simmering period, there are indications that his anger is simmering. Just like the milk, you look down and you can see it start to boil or you can see the steam coming up. You know it's starting to simmer. In the same way, God sends us signs. Uh, he may send us uh, direction from his word or he may send us a godly counsel from a Christian friend. He might send us a, a convicting feeling in our heart or conscience or maybe he even sends us a problem so that he gets our attention so that he can redirect our paths and all of this happens in the simmering time and that's the time to pay attention to God's message to pay attention to God's word and his direction for us because if we don't it will boil over Nahum reminds us and shows us that his patience is not unending and in so doing, he shows us some characteristics about God that oftentimes we don't want to think about. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, God is a jealous God. Please understand what he means. He doesn't mean that God is an envious God. Envy is when you look at something that somebody else has and you spitefully desire it for yourself. That's envy. And God is never envious of anything or anyone. First of all, he owns all that there is anyway. So he doesn't have to envy. There's never been a moment in God's existence where he looked over and he said, hey, I want one of those. He already has one of those, right? He's not envious. Jealousy is different than envy, though. Jealousy is when you're jealous for something that you already have that someone else is trying to take away. And repeatedly throughout the Scripture, we hear of God being a jealous God, jealous for His glory, Jealous for his honor, jealous for his people, jealous for his purposes in the world. And God here is jealous for his glory. The idea that a pagan nation could defeat God's people and believe in their minds and hearts that somehow their pagan gods that they created with their own hands and now worship have given them the strength to defeat the armies of the one true God and take their cap the captives back to Assyria. The, the idea that they're honoring their pagan gods over the one true God. God is jealous for His glory in that. And God is saying, I want my glory back. Because he knows that the only reason that Syria was able to be victorious in the north is because, because he himself used them as the, the instrument in his hand to punish his people who were straying away from the one true God. And now he's saying, I want my glory back. We also learn in verse 2, God is a vengeful God. Again, vengeance is not the same as spiteful revenge. Vengeance carries the idea of making wrongs right. It is punitive justice. It is the very reason, in God's character, the very reason why He tells us not to take revenge. 
In Romans chapter 12, we read, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. See, He is the only one who can exact punitive justice perfectly, with total wisdom. So He says, Don't you do it. You leave it to me. But God is also good. In chapter 1, verse 7, where we started, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. He protects those who trust in Him. He's a shelter for those who trust in Him. The message is plain. Trust in Him. Nineveh's doom is declared in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, Nineveh's doom is described. Read it with me, starting in verse 1, chapter 2. He sees the scene of destruction in his mind. He goes, an attacker advances against you, Nineveh. Guard the fortress, watch the road, brace yourselves, marshal all your strength. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. That's a little parenthesis right there. Now he goes back to the battle scene. The shields of his soldiers are red. The warriors are clad in scarlet. The metal on the chariots flashes on the day that they were made ready. The spears of pine are brandished. The chariots storm through the streets, rushing back and forth through the squares. They look like flaming torches. They dart about like lightning. He summons his picked troops, yet they stumble on their way. They dash to the city wall. The protective shield is put in place. The river gates are thrown open, and the palace collapses. Nahum is giving us a vivid description of the battle scene that is coming. He can give that to us because God has shown this battle scene to him in advance. He describes point by point the advance of the Babylonian army. The Babylonian army wore scarlet war banners. The technology of their warfare was chariots and spears. The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus writes that in 612, the attack against Nineveh by the Babylonian armies came when the Tigris River was at flood stage. And what happened was the, the waters of that river undermined those great walls that the, that the Assyrians had built. And the walls came cr crashing down, the armies rushed in, and Nineveh was defeated. And Nahum predicts it exactly. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. Chapter 2, six, verse 6. The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. And the destruction of Nineveh was complete. And so devastated was this city that it ceased to be. And it was lost to history until 1842. Can you imagine? Lost to history until 1842. In 1842, a British archaeologist who was living in Mosul wondered what those mounds of dirt over there used to be. And he started a dig on what we call a tell, a mound of dirt there, and he, he, they, they, they excavated and they came across what they later found out was the ruins of the city of, of Nineveh. Uh, I have uh, some slides that this is the, what the dig looks like, well, not today, but fairly recently uh, th th as they're digging, and they're starting to reconstruct some aspects of Nineveh. Go to the next slide. There you see they're reconstructing one of the gates, uh, what it might have looked like uh, back in the day. And all of this uh, area uh, is being, was being excavated. In that uh, dig, they found 22,000 cuneiform tablets. 
that tell the story of the history of, of Assyria from the Assyrians' point of view. And in those tablets, we read ev biblical events only from their point of view. And they tell the story of the kings Sennacherib and Ashurbanipal that we read about in the Bible. But in 2010, the Global Heritage Fund designated Nineveh, that site you saw, as one of the top 12 endangered archaeological sites due to looting and people taking away the artifacts in that site. And today, like I said, it is under the control of ISIS and so probably being ransacked. They are destroying uh, these historical places. But when they, but when they find uh, uh, artifacts in Nineveh, the archaeologist will point out that something very unique happens in that dig, and that is that they do not find any personal wealth. It is extremely unusual. Usually when we find these ancient cities and we dig in there, we find coins, we find gold vessels, we find jewelry and that kind of thing, or the remnants of jewelry. Not so in Nineveh. There is no personal wealth being found there, and Nahum tells us why. Chapter 2, verse 9. This is his prediction. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. The supply is endless. The wealth from all its treasures. She is pillaged, plundered, and stripped. Nahum gets it right on the nose every time. The walls fall in a flood. The city is looted and burned. And Nineveh is no more. And when you get to chapter 3, he tells you why. Here's their doom and why they deserved it. Chapter 3, verse 1, and then verse 19. He says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. Verse 19, Nothing can heal your wounds. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? See, Nineveh earned her destruction partly because of her great and extreme inhumanity. The Assyrians came to believe that they were a master race and that all the people around them, those kingdoms that they conquered, they, they were less than human, and so they treated them like beasts. Woe to the city of blood. In their own records, as they tell the story of their wars, the scholars who translate those ancient texts come across a phrase again and again and again written by the Assyrians, and it is this, and space failed for corpses. Space failed for corpses. In other words, there were so many bodies, we, couldn't, we didn't have a place to put them. We started to pile them up. Woe to you, city of blood. They recovered tablets tell about skinning their enemies alive, piling up mounds of decapitated heads in the city square, burning people alive, both men and women. And all of this was an outrage to God because God understands that human life is sacred and that humans have dignity. God cares about human life, and so we must care about human life. God cares about human dignity, so we must care about human dignity. We must care about the atrocities that we see going on in our world today and all around us. And human, uh, the sacredness of human life and human dignity does not come from the place that those uh, who are humanists would tell us that every heart, everybody is good at heart and therefore deserves a, a, a chance to thrive. That's not where our dignity comes from. In reality, we recognize that we are fallen people in need of salvation, but we are uniquely related to a Creator who created us in His image and sacrificed His Son on the cross so that we can know forgiveness and be with Him forever. That's what gives us dignity and worth. William Temple once said, My worth is what I am worth to God, and that is a marvelous great deal because Christ died for me. Your worth, are what you are worth is what you are worth to God. And that is a marvelous great deal. Christ died for you. 
so that you can know forgiveness. Dignity comes from the cross as Jesus sees you as worth dying for. And this dignity is for all people in all nations. God's concern is global. God's focus is global. That is why in our church we have a commission working called the Global Focus Commission. We want to focus where God focuses, on all peoples. So it means this. There is no place for prejudice or racial equality in the heart of a follower of God. No place for bigotry in the follower of a heart of God. And it also means that we must work and pray so that people of every language and every ethnicity hear the message of Jesus Christ. Because Nahum shows us the danger of becoming people who consider ourselves superior to others. In the case of the Assyrians, it caused them to be violent and aggressive. But in our case, it may cause us to be uncaring. It may cause us to be blind for the chances we have to help those who are in need or spread the message of the gospel. In our case, it may cause us to have blinders on so we forget to look at the faces of the people in our lives and remember that everyone you ever meet is going to live forever somewhere. Somewhere. And the question is, where? And we get to spread the message of Jesus Christ that changes eternity. But the message of Nahum also shows us that we dare not think that God will give unlimited time. We dare not think that at a time of our own choosing, we can get around to caring about spiritual things, the kind of things that God cares about. Because when we're living, you know, outside of, outside of God's will in a rebellion to Him, eventually I'll turn back to God when I'm good and ready. God's patience is not unlimited. Part of God's judgment on the Assyrians was they, He gave them just what they wanted. They wanted to be powerful. They wanted to be rich. They wanted to be victorious in their wars. And God gave them that. And as, as they received that, they turned their back on the God that Jonah preached to them about. There's only two minor prophets of these, these shorter books of the prophets who end with a question. It is striking to me that both of those books are directed at Nineveh. Jonah ends with the question of God himself asking, should I not be concerned with this city? And Nahum ends with the question, who has not felt your cruelty? It's like God is using that literary device to link these two books in our minds to remind us, these people squandered my mercy. Don't squander my mercy. Because eventually, God's anger boils over. Nahum reminds us that God is both wrathful and loving. And very often his wrath against sin comes because of his love for us. That's, that's how it happens. Isn't that how it happens in your life? That, that things you get angry about or when people or things that you love are threatened? I mean, think about the first time your kid came home after being bullied at school. Didn't you want to get in your car and drive down and beat that kid up? Right? I got angry because I'm lo I love my child. And in the same way, Nahum shows us that God is angry with sin. But he's ready to love those who turn to him and demonstrate his mercy for those who trust him. And that trust is born because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Nahum can, be, can serve us as a filter to remind us that in the cross of Jesus Christ, Christ himself took on that wrath. He absorbed that pain and suffering so that we don't have to. And as we turn to him in faith, verse 7 applies to us. And this is what it says. Verse 7 of chapter 1. The Lord is good, a refuge in time of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. So trust in Him. 
Allow God to kill off what's like Nineveh in you. And what is like Nineveh at its essence? It is pride. Trusting yourself instead of God. But God cares for those who trust in Him. It makes me think of a song. Uh, it's a song written by a man named John Stockton, of all things. It, it begins, the, the, the verse begins with the line, Come every soul by sin oppressed. There's mercy with the Lord. But I want you to sing the, the chorus. I mean, it might be new to you. But let's make this a, a declaration this morning. Ready? Only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. He will save you, He will save you, He will save you now. Once again, only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. He will save you, He will save you, He will save you now. The Lord cares for those who trust in Him. Just one more minute. A sermon is done, but something else I thought about about Nahum. Nahum shows us that what you read when you read the Bible is not stories. You read history. God has decisively intervened in history, okay? All right? And He has intervened in your history at the cross of Jesus Christ. I was, once was at a lecture, and the, the, the lecturer was a professor of archaeology at the University of Tel Aviv. He was an atheist, but he goes to all these sites and he digs up all this old stuff and, and he gave a really good talk about archaeology and at the end, he was Q&A time and somebody raised their hand and he said, where do you, how do you know where to dig? And this atheist's answer was, I read the Bible. This is history. God has work. In a moment, we're going to go our separate ways, but maybe you have something in your life for which you need prayer. We always have prayer partners by the prayer table. They love to just stand with you before the Lord. You slip forward, but first let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you can be trusted. And in the week ahead, we may have questions, but Lord, we'll trust you for the answers. And we thank you that you are decisively working in the history of our world and in our own personal stories as well. So help us cling tightly to you, we pray, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.